a missionary present with us, not being able to be in Japan because of COVID, who's also a licensed ruling elder preacher. Uh, our Book of Church Order has an, a, a, a way of uh, licensing ruling elders to preach, and Dan Iverson, the head of Japan MTW Mission, asked if James River would please license Bob Drews before he went, and I'm given to, I, I've got the report that God has used his preaching through translation in Japanese churches, and now it's our privilege to hear from Bob Drews. Good morning. It's a delight for us to be here and for me to bring you God's word this morning. Our scripture text is Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, so please turn there or look in your bulletin as we hear the word of God. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, Sharon and I are very thankful to be here with you. We've been attending regularly since 2013 and we became members last year, and we're very thankful for Wallace and for the welcome you have given to us and for the support you've given us for our work in Japan. Sharon and I took a somewhat unusual route to the mission field. We were asked to join the growing MTW team in Japan in 2007, and we got there in 2010, and we were 60 years old. But I was quite confident of our ability to do the new work there. After all, I'd been a Navy surface warfare officer for 21 years. We'd moved 30 times by the time we went to Japan. Sharon and I had, Sharon had almost single-handedly raised our three children, having what was described as the toughest job in the Navy, being a Navy wife. So when we arrived in Japan, I thought, this can't be so hard. <laughs> Aha! A few months later, our faithful pastor, Reverend Jack Howell at Trinity Church, Norfolk, Virginia, called and asked how we were. And I said, we're great. And I was surprised as Sharon pushed me out of the way from in front of the video screen. And she said, Jack, we are not great. And she proceeded to tell him what I hadn't listened to, that the pace we were running at since our arrival in Japan was burning her and us out. Jack listened carefully, asked a few questions, kind of laughed a bit, and said, well, I'm glad you'll be coming home soon. We've missed you. But with Jack's help, we reorganized our schedule. I started listening and planning better, 
And we were able to attain a sustainable effort and we were able to stay in Japan, not just for one term as we had planned, but for two terms and even longer. But what I want you to hear is this, that Trinity Church and our pastor there were truly partners in the gospel for us. You see, a, partner is, a partnership is more than just sending money, although that is really important. And I'd like to use Paul's relationship with the Philippians as a kind of case study of a healthy sending church and missionary partnership. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I give thanks to you for Wallace Church and for her partnership in the gospel with us. I pray, Lord, today as we look at Paul's relationship with the Philippians, that you would help us learn and grow together as we explore this beautiful text and as we understand what God was doing in and through Paul and the Philippians together. I pray you'd guide my words and our hearing of them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when Paul called the Philippians partners in the gospel, he wasn't using the term casually. Rather, he was addressing a church uh, which had truly partnered with him to advance the gospel into new regions. And we're going to be exploring this relationship from a number of different places in Philippians. So uh, pull your pew Bibles out, open to Philippians, and get ready to follow along. We see Paul updating the Philippians on his mission work. As we look at this as a mission prayer letter, if you will, he's, he's updating them on his work and thanking them for their help. But the relationship is also two-way. They're helping him, but he also exhorts and counsels them in the ongoing concerns of church life. As he does this, he gives a really good outline in the way missionaries and their sending churches can relate. So rather than simply talking about the verses we just read, we'll, we'll look throughout Philippians at what Paul and the church have been doing to develop this partnership. Of course, we learned from Acts chapter 16 that Paul visited Philippi in a second missionary journey. We learned of two early converts, Lydia and a Philippian jailer and his family. From this unusual core group, we can see that a devoted and healthy church emerged. Although Paul didn't stay long in Philippi, he obviously maintained a strong relationship with the church. And we see they committed themselves to helping Paul on his mission to spread the gospel. So as we quickly walk through the letter, I'd like to see Paul's partnership with the Philippians with five P words, partners with a purse, partners in prayer, partners in person, partners in persecution, partners in proclamation. Okay, that was fast. Purse, prayer, person, persecution, and proclamation. So it's a five-point sermon, go menasai, there'll be very short points. <laughs> Partners with a purse. We see this in chapter 4, verse 10, and again in 15 to 18. So let's get this one out of the way, because it's what missionaries always talk about. Missionaries need financial support to do the work, and Paul was no exception. That support needs to come from sending, church, uh, sending churches, supporting churches, and uh, friends and communities. Paul specifically re references the help the Philippians sent in chapter 4. He says in 15, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit 
that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So we learn that the Philippians had been generous supporters of Paul, both for his mission work and for the collection Paul was gathering for the famine in Jerusalem. So you might ask, why do missionaries today need support from churches in the U.S.? Well, we see from Paul's example that he operated as part of a diverse team. Similarly, cross-cultural missionaries use the money from their supporting churches to help build the local indigenous church. Before that, church has resources of its own to pay their own ministers and other workers. Before, they have money to build church buildings or to publish Christian books. Your gifts to missionaries not only provide living expenses, but help build up the local church. I work with an unreached people group, which by definition means they don't have the resources to sustain church planting and evangelism from within their own country. But we should also look at how Paul understands the Philippians' gift to bring them blessing. He says in 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, not that I seek the gift, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And I've received full payment. And he calls the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So you see, Paul's sense of connection to the Philippians is so strong, he's giving them credit for the mission fruit, the outcome of successful church planning and evangelism. That fruit is increasing to the credit of the Philippians. He even calls their gifts a fragrant offering, invoking the imagery of temple worship where incense was kept burning as a pleasing aroma before God himself. So your mission giving is a fragrant offering to God himself, and it increases to your credit. Second, partners in prayer, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, and again 19. Paul considers the Philippians his partners in prayer. It isn't as strong in Philippians as it is in some other letters, but in 19 he says, I know through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. So he's depending on the prayers of the Philippians. He just assumes they're praying for them. In other prayers, he asks for his work. For example, he asks the Colossians to pray that God may open a door for us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So we see that the apostle Paul needs the prayers of the churches to sustain him and to grow his work of mission. One of the things we were warned about when we were training to go out on the field was the tendency of missionaries to see their identity as being rooted in their work, to see their mission success as who they are as a person and their worth before God and before other missionaries and before the churches. If the mission succeeds, the missionary is tempted. When, when we fall into that way of thinking, it's, it's a disaster for us because if we succeed, then we're filled with pride. And if we don't succeed, we're cast down. We're uh, filled with despair or anger or blame or shame. But the antidote is to see the mission as God's mission and our dependency on prayer as our way of depending on God, on bringing him and his power to the work and to 
recognize before him that I don't have the power to succeed as a missionary. I can tell you in our darkest times on the mission field, we've been lifted up knowing people were praying for us. And we know that whatever blessings come from our work are due to the work of the Holy Spirit brought about through your prayers. So we work in Japan, which is incredibly resistant to the gospel. Dedicated, brilliant, hardworking missionaries have been working there for 150 years. If, if we weren't waiting for God, we would think there's no hope. But there is hope. We need prayer to bring about a work of the Holy Spirit to break through that resistance. And of course, Wallace needs prayer too. That's why Paul prays for the Philippians as well. This encouragement to pray is reciprocal. We pray for you. Your missionaries pray for you. And it's a blessing for missionaries to be involved in praying for their churches as well. Last week, we had the great blessing of seeing people becoming members of Wallace and, and, and we were watching them take vows. It's just such a blessing for our church to have new members come in. And vow number four is this. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? And I, I think sometimes we overthink that question. Uh, people will say, oh, I don't have much. I, I, don't, I can't do this. I can't do that. But here's what everyone can do. Everyone can pray. Everyone can participate in worship. The most needful work of the church is prayer and everyone, children, women, men, regardless of your walk of life, regardless of your other gifts and abilities can come before the Lord in prayer. So please pray for Wallace and pray week by week for your missionaries as well. Third, partners in person. And we see this in chapter two, verses 25 to 30. And you may have missed this in reading Philippians, but we have a brief insight into how devoted they were in supporting Paul. In an age before we had international bank transfers, wire transfers, ATMs, remittances, the only way to get money to Paul was to hand carry it. So the Philippians sent a man from their church to bring their gift and to help, to stay and help Paul. And we read this uh, beginning in verse 25, chapter 2. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow." I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I be, may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, I hope you catch what was happening here, and I hope this will be an encouragement to you all. Epaphroditus, it seems, became homesick and physically sick, and Paul had to send him back home. Now, that's not usually what we think of as a successful mission trip. But what does Paul say about him? He, he says, honor such men. He welcomed this representative from a supporting church. So he, and we don't have to send people with money today, but it's so important for missionaries on the field to get visitors from their sending churches, from the United States, to come and see them and visit with them. 
and uh, help them if they can. But uh, even if they just pray and watch the work and get a good insight into what's happening and, uh, and bring a good report back. And it's important then for churches to send pastors and elders and prayer teams, short and long-term workers. Our home, previous home church pastor, Jack Howell, went to Japan, has gone to Japan many times over the last 10 years just to support missionaries. And in the meantime, he maintained Zoom pastoral care for, I'd say, a dozen of our Japan missionaries, personal contact uh, on about a quarterly basis. Now, young people, if we have any that didn't go out, uh, young people, listen, this is for you too. When I was a kid, I used to think, oh, missionaries, they're some kind of superhero kind of folks. You have to have some kind of magical ability to go out on the mission field. But much of mission work is everyday life. In our time in Japan, I've driven a truck, picked up dozens of people at the airport by car, train, and bus. I've made schedule spreadsheets, dug ditches, cleaned out attics, babysat, changed diapers, washed dishes, and once I repaired the ladies' toilet during a worship service. I the main skill needed to serve as a missionary is a willingness to serve sacrificially. I once had a young woman ask me, I don't really have any abilities. Uh, I just want to serve. Can I come? Is there a place for me on the mission field? I almost cried when she asked me this. Yes, please come. Can you speak English or Korean? Can you change diapers? How about a skilled administrator or a bookkeeper? We really need administrators in Japan. Can you play with kids? Young people of Wallace, missions is not impossible for you. There are many ways to serve. Think about it as you grow up and as you get to an age where you can travel on your own. Think and pray, what is God calling to you to do? Retired people, similarly, Sharon and I were retirement age when we went to Japan. And think about Epaphroditus. He wasn't a superhero. He was homesick and ill and had to be sent home. But Paul had been blessed and says, honor such men. Even if you aren't called to serve as a long or short-term missionary, I hope you'll consider sending representatives to visit Mount Forts or some of your other mission families. Pray with them, encourage them, bless them, and bring back reports from them. I know some of you have done that, and we're thankful for that, and I hope that will continue. The fourth one, fourth P word is persecution, partners in persecution. And we see that in chapter one, verses 28 and 29. And it's a little more unusual, but I think it's important. Paul sees the Philippians as co-sufferers. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So we don't live in a world where missionaries are stoned or thrown in jail or beaten or lashed very often. It Paul was, although even today, the missionary experience includes many trials. I, I don't know if you saw in the news last night or this morning, a short-term team in Haiti working with an orphanage was taken hostage and are still being held hostage, so we should pray for them. But uh, so there are still trials. But even if there's not that kind of direct danger or persecution, there's, there's still stress 
and hardship associated with the mission field. Many of you here at Wallace have come from other countries and you know how hard it is to adapt to a new country and a new culture. And cross-cultural missionaries similarly live under constant background stress of being aliens in the country where they serve. I could tell you stories of humiliating cultural blunders Sharon and I have made and the constant struggle to understand what's going on around us. More serious though are situations where we see missionaries subject to surveillance, threatened or expelled from their mission fields. And you know some of those stories from our own Wallace missionaries. But here's the point. Paul identifies the Philippians as having the same experience as he does. Their persecution and his are the same. Now in the United States, the church isn't used to suffering, I think. In Paul's time, the Christian church was alienated from the Jewish church and from the pagan Roman state religions as well. Christians were a tiny misunderstood and marginalized minority. So trial, suffering, and persecution were expected and even considered a mark of Christ's blessing, joining him in his suffering. Paul has a very powerful idea of union both to Christ and through him to one another. So the experience of one becomes the experience of all. So we here at Wallace have a part in the trials of our missionaries' experience. We need to be careful with this. Paul bounds the experience of trial and suffering. While to be expected to be true Christian suffering, Paul in verse 27 exhorts them to live lives worthy of the gospel. And then immediately following this passage in chapter two, he grounds them in humility as expressed by Christ himself. So the church's experience of suffering comes from living humble, authentic gospel lives in a hostile environment, not through confrontational assertiveness. This is a very complex topic. I'm just briefly touching on it, but I wanna connect you here to Paul's encouragement to his supporting church. In fact, he tells them their perseverance in trial is a sign of God's favor to his own, favor toward his own and judgment on his enemies. As he says, uh, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened of anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Okay, the last of our five P words, proclamation. Chapter one, verses 15 to 18. Proclaiming the gospel and discipleship in the gospel are the heart of the missionary's work. So in Philippians 1, 15 to 18, we read, indeed, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So the point I want you to get here is Paul's emphasis on the proclamation of the gospel. He's been reporting to them the remarkable fact that even though he's in jail, the gospel's going forth, and it's happened in a couple of ways. He shared the gospel with his jailers, and some of them apparently have come to faith. And the Roman Christians, following Paul's example, have been encouraged to share their faith more boldly. 
Paul's mission is to proclaim Christ and his proclamation is amplified as others proclaim him as well. We can learn several things from this text. There are different sorts of people preaching different things about Christianity in the early church. There were different sorts of people. And here Paul talks about people who are opposing him, enemies. He says, seeking to afflict him in his imprisonment. Their motivations are greed and envy, Paul says. Well, that's not a ringing endorsement, but Paul rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. The words they're speaking are true about Jesus. And he's thankful. He's not harboring resentment against these guys. They're preaching, maybe from bad motives, but it contains gospel truth, and Paul can rejoice in that. So hey, that gives us humility as we think about, oh, maybe they're not with my mission, or maybe they're not from my church. But we can rejoice when the gospel is proclaimed. But if we look at chapter 3, we see a different kind of uh, preaching going on. Uh, Paul calls these guys dogs of the circumcision and warns the Philippians to beware of them. They don't preach Christ at all. Rather, they preach a righteousness by works of the law. So Paul needs the Philippians to be discerning. Support true gospel proclamation, root out and cast out false gospel proclamation. And he also needs for his supporting churches to proclaim the true gospel themselves. It's important what happens here at Wallace. It's important for missionaries, your missionaries, what happens here. The proclamation of the gospel here is important to them. For these churches to remain healthy and sound, they need pure preaching of the word. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul needs churches, not just where he's working, but all the churches that have been planted to shine forth as beacons of hope in a fallen world. If like the Philippian church, he can point to the fruit of the gospel as he moves to new communities, the gospel takes on more hope and power. He uses them as an example as he goes to the next place. Look at the Philippians. They're faithful. They're growing in grace. They're helping support me. It isn't just hope for the future, although it is that, but it's hope for today as well. He can point to the Philippians and say, look, God is doing a work there. You can see it. They're shining as lights. My boss often brings Japanese pastors where the churches are tiny and weak. He brings them to the United States and he takes them around and visits churches that are healthy and vibrant, where there's baptisms, where there's discipleship, where families are growing in grace and love toward one another, where the gospel is proclaimed and there's much fruit, where there's Christian community, where there's repentance and where there's joy. So your spiritual health, Wallace, is important to your missionaries. If Paul is planting churches and they soon turn to unbelief, his work is vain. So we partner at Wallace and on the mission field to proclaim the same pure word. Paul, you see, understands the Philippians and continues to help and guide them. Your missionaries look back at their home churches 
and they bring back with them a cross-cultural perspective in their understanding of the church. They can be a rich resource for you, for their supporting churches. They see things about you that you may not see about yourselves, and they can offer to share them if you ask. Well, those are my five P words, but I'm going to cheat one more. Partakers of grace as I close. I've sketched out a number of ways Paul saw the Philippians as his mission partners. We see purse, prayer, people, persecution, and proclamation, all as ways Paul and the Philippians were united in mission. I'd like to draw this, draw this together with the idea of partaking of grace together. In Paul's opening greeting, he's expressing the joy he feels in his relationship with them as he reminds, reminds them that together, he and the Philippians are together partakers of grace. Now that phrase has always struck me. Usually when we speak of partaking, we are talking about eating a meal together or drinking together. Paul's inviting the Philippians to imagine that they and Paul are joining together in a great feast, not of meat and drink, but of the bounty of God's grace. We can see something of how Paul thinks about this when we read his words from chapter 3 in verses 7 to 12. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I'd like to share a story of grace. Many years ago, Sharon and I were on a short-term trip to Belize with our church. And one young high school girl desperately wanted to come along with this team, but she came from a very large, devout, but poor family. And she had to work so hard to raise the money to come. But she did, and she was able to come along. Well, we told all the young people on this trip, all the expenses were paid except for uh, their last day of lunch. And they had a day off, and we said, bring $50 to spend on gifts or souvenirs, but save enough to buy lunch at the airport on your last day. So the last day, we get up at four in the morning, we travel all morning to the airport, stand in line, get checked in, and finally, at last, we have like two hours before our flight. And uh, they had kind of a cafeteria. And I noticed this young lady standing, kind of looking at the cafeteria, the food in the case. And I said to her, you don't have any money, do you? And she said, I'm not hungry. Well, she was 16, and she hadn't eaten since 4 a.m. She had to be hungry. So I said, 
the team has extra money for situations like this. I, I have some money, it's not my own money, I can buy lunch for you. She said, I'm not hungry. And I said, you need to learn about grace. I'm offering you grace. It's a simple and small grace for me. I have plenty of money and I can buy lunch for you. If you can't accept a small act of grace from me, how can you accept enormous grace from Jesus Christ? Forgiveness of sins, a promise of eternal life with him, the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you have to accept grace through others. Well, she burst into tears and she allowed me to buy her lunch. But as I was reflecting on that, I thought, I'm preaching to myself. How often have I tried to buy God's favor? How often have I tried to earn my way into his good graces? How often have I tried to appear pious and holy before you and before others, all in an effort to buy grace? But we can't buy grace. It's the missionary's great temptation and downfall to imagine going on the mission field, we're earning God's favor. We can't do that. Our pride is our greatest enemy. God is inviting us, young people, old people, missionaries, pastors, elders, deacons, everyone here, to a banquet of grace, together to partake of grace. That great feast the Lord has prepared. We're all level here. No longer, no matter how long we've been a Christian, no matter how powerful or weak our testimony, no matter how great or little are our accomplishments. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together today, think of it as partaking in grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't buy it. We didn't prepare it. We didn't set the table. We come without money and without price. This meal of a morsel of bread and a drop of wine was purchased for us at the cost of our Savior's perfect life, poured out as a drink offering and given to us as a perfect robe of righteousness. Join together with your brothers and sisters from Japan and China and Africa, Latin America, South America, Central Asia, Europe, around the world. Come, eat, and drink, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus had made us his own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for the gospel that Paul proclaimed to the Philippians and in partnership with them throughout the Roman world. We're thankful, Lord, that on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, your church has been built and is being built. I pray, Lord, that you would help us today to partake of grace, to experience and rejoice in that great banquet that you provide for us without price, without money. We're thankful, Lord, for Christ, his death, his resurrection, the grace he pours out on us. And we pray, Lord, that a needy world around us would join in and receive that grace as well. We pray in his name, amen. Please stand and join in singing.